Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, CEO of Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and executive chairman of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Now, over the past few weeks, we've had some interesting conversations. We've discussed the future of urban mobility with Dr. Evangelos Mudis from Synapse Partners and and we discussed the future of AI and e-commerce with Dr. Haishin Wang from Instacart. Well, today we're gonna to get a different perspective on the future of work from someone who has discovered and invested in companies that have provided what I'll call pandemic plumbing, like, uh, oh, like say Slack and Zendesk. Uh, we have unique opportunity to explore what's different about the winners, and more important, what, uh, what we can look forward to up ahead. Glenn Solomon has been a managing director at GGV Capital for the past 15 years. Beyond Slack and Zendesk, Glenn and the team have invested in some really iconic companies, including HashiCorp, Opendoor, Airbnb, Square, and that's really just, uh, just the start of the, of the very impressive list. When not investing in startups, Glenn's a podcaster as well at Founder Real Talk, and he's a prolific blogger at the Going Long blog. I encourage you to listen to his excellent recent uh, discussion with Josh Silverman, uh, certainly one of my role models from Etsy. Uh, we are lucky to be joined by Glenn. Without further ado, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you uh, share a little bit about your background and uh, how'd you get into this space? Dan, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, fun that you had Evangelos Mudis on recently. He's my neighbor. So uh, you, you, got, you got West Menlo Park cornered. Uh, how did I get into venture capital? I, you know, I've, so I've been at, at GGV Capital now for 15 years. Um, and it's been, it's been a wonderful run. Uh, prior to that, I spent uh, nearly nine years at another venture capital firm called Partech International. So I've been in the venture business really my entire adult professional career. Uh, I graduated from Stanford Business School back in, in uh, 1997 and have been in the venture business ever since. Um, I tell my wife that it's really the, I, it's arguable whether I really know how to do venture capital, but it is the only thing, if I do know how to do it, it's the only thing I know how to do professionally at this point. So I hope they don't kick me out. You've accomplished so much uh, across those uh, 20, 25 plus years. Uh, what would you say is the accomplishment of, about which you're most proud? Great question. Uh, by the way, this is one of my favorite questions to ask uh, when I'm interviewing execs at companies. What's, you know, what's the thing that's made you most proud? Because it really does uh, give you a window into somebody's motivators and what, what, what they care about. And for me, the answer is I can't point to one specific company per se. Um, lots of the stories make me proud. But I'll, what I'd say is it's the people with whom I've worked and watching them develop. That is the thing that's made me most proud and, and the thing that fulfills me in this role, uh, helping both founders uh, and startup execs really build companies and go through lots of personal transition themselves and maturation as they move through the different phases of building out companies and, and having to play different roles as those companies grow and helping advise folks in those roles 
and watching them grow is just gives me tremendous amount of uh, pride and lets me know that I'm doing right in the world. Uh, and also internally at GGV, we've, we've spent a lot of time building out our team and really trying to um, put in place a culture that allows people to continue to expand their horizons and gain, you know, and, and take on more responsibility and, and really uh, achieve great things. And it, it gives me a lot of pride to watch, watch that in action as well. Over the years, you've met obviously hundreds of entrepreneurs and some of them you help bootstrap to fame and fortune. Maybe share with us one example of someone that you met early in their career who uh, you know just had that spark. What, what was it about him or her? And just kind of share with us the story. Okay, cool. Uh, that's a great, great question. I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll pick one that I'm, I'm quite fond of. A founder, uh, actually a, a, a set of co-founders, a guy named Mitchell Hashimoto, and his co-founder, Armand Dadgar, um, who I met, I first met Mitchell uh, when he was 23 years old. He, at the time, was a, effectively a DevOps engineer at a uh, company in San Francisco doing kind of an, in the ad tech space. And he had graduated from University of Washington just a, a year or two earlier. Um, and while he was at Washington, UW, he actually had started to build a software called Vagrant, an open source software that was very popular amongst developers to uh, you know, rapidly set up a development environment um, on, on one's machine. So particularly useful for folks coding on Macs, but launching into Linux environments. Um, and Vagrant had become very popular and we were combing the world for growing open source projects at the time. And so um, along with a colleague of mine, we met Mitchell for coffee. And I was really impressed by his, uh, despite his young age, his mature vision for where the world was going and the role that software he could build could play in it. He believed strongly then and still does in the power of automation and in pushing things into code that were uh, previously done manually. And that to me seemed like a very compelling vision we got to know each other over the next three to six months. And he called me um, sometime later to say, hey, I've gotten an offer to sell the company. And um, he actually recently made this public. So I can talk about it in more detail, but I won't name the name because he didn't name the company, but basically a company offered him uh, roughly $50 million to buy his company at the time. And it was really just at that time, Mitchell and Armand and they had just raised the seed round from True Ventures. So it would have been a very lucrative deal for Mitchell himself as a 23 going on 24 year old. You know, Mitchell uh, didn't, didn't grow up wealthy. And so this would have changed his life. And we spent uh, six hours or so over the course of two or three conversations talking about the pros and cons of making that decision, going with, uh, you know, selling his company or, or deciding to do something independent and saying no to that kind of money. And I became so compelled by him as a person. And I actually just told him this story um, or he, he, he told the story on Twitter uh, recently of, you know, turning down that offer. And I told him, I don't, you know, I, I responded to his Twitter and said, I don't know if you knew this, but that's really the reason I decided to invest in you at series a. Um, I was just, so compelled. I mean, of course, the vision was amazing. And the fact that he could build great software along with Armand was, was truly uh, remarkable. But it was that conviction, and the gumption to go for it, that really got me excited. And so 
uh, was able to uh, invest at Series A and um, join the board of HashiCorp then. It was five person or so company at the time. And it's been really fun to watch both Mitchell and Armand continue to develop their careers, um, take different paths at the company, play different roles. They're both co-CTO, but they, they occupy sort of different, different corridors in what they do and how they contribute. They've brought on a CEO. Uh, they've grown the company to well north of 1,000 people, well north of uh, uh, these days somewhere around 15% of the global 2,000 are customers. Uh, and probably 100% of the global 2,000 are using their open source. So it's been a really cool, uh, fun experience to watch them grow and watch them grow a company. That's a phenomenal story. I followed that rocket ride because a uh, previous investor uh, uh, in the company I was at, uh, Robin Vassan, also wrote a check so pretty Rob early on. Yeah, Robin and I joined the board together at Series yeah. A. He led that round and I came in and joined him and we both joined the board together and you know, he he uh, he subsequently left Mayfield um, and ultimately left the board. But um, those first two or three years working with Robin together on the board, along with Mitchell and Armand, and then ultimately Dave McJanet, who we all brought on together as CEO, had were just some of the some of the most fun uh, fun experiences I've had as a venture capitalist. Good, good segue into another question. So, outside of Silicon Valley, I think it might not be as well understood that almost every successful company has some near-death experience. And, uh, you know, oftentimes what we see kind of uh, when they're ringing the bell or something like that is the, you know, the success, but we don't see the, you know, the long road to the quote overnight success. Uh, maybe give us an example of, a, you know, a company maybe that you invested in early um, that we know as that overnight success, but maybe, you know, had, had a few stumbles along the way. Yeah, they all have some stumbles along the way. That is a great observation. One uh, a story I'll tell is of a company called Open Door, which is now a public company. You know, and I and Dan, as you know, I spend most of my time investing in companies in the enterprise and enterprise infrastructure world. Um, so Open Door may look a bit of anomalous, uh, given that it's you know they're a company that's trying to reinvent how people buy and sell homes. Um, but what attracted me to the company early on, I was looking at the real estate market, uh, trying to find companies where software was, was um, you know, disrupting opportunity because real estate is such a big part of our economy. And I knew that software and continue to believe that software is, is, is really changing every business and every company is becoming a software company. So what could happen in real estate? And this was back in uh, 2014, 15 that I was doing this work. And I heard about Open Door right after they launched the company um, as Home Run, and uh, called a friend of mine, Keith Raboy, who had um, he had co-founder status. Actually, he was so early with the idea and uh, and funded it first back when he was at Coastal Ventures, doing kind of like they they skipped the seed and went straight to a big A. But it was still a very early stage company. I asked Keith for an intro to Eric, the CEO and, and founder. Uh, Eric Wu. And uh, over the course of a six-month period or so, got to know Eric quite well, really became in, uh, enthralled with the model and uh, believed that there were a couple of risks that they, during that six-month period, they were able to show me great progress against. Um, and so I went back to my partners and said, look, we have a, an opportunity here to preempt a Series B. It's still, a, you know, it's a 10-person company. We're going to have to pay a $100 million-ish valuation to get in. So it's expensive. But I think this could be this company could really be special, and I'd like to do it. And um, 
fortune favors the brave, but I, I tend to be you know, pretty analytical. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot to analyze just at that moment. Eric's fond of reminding me of that. <laughs> I, I did believe in him as a person. and I believed in the opportunity. And I thought that they really had, because they, they were introducing data science into the problem, like they, they could really disrupt what to, heretofore had been, is, is a very manual and difficult process that uh, most people, if you've ever owned a home and had to either buy or sell, know is, you know, is, is, is risky and heart-wrenching and takes a long time. And most people can't uh, own two homes at the same time. And so it's very difficult when you're trying to sell one home and buy another at the same time. And that's really the problem they help solve. Um, and it was really difficult to sell it internally, actually. Uh, there was a lot of controversy and for, for good reason internally. It's not that my partners didn't have confidence in me or in Eric, just that a lot of things had to go right. And, um, you know, my partners did a very good job of kind of warning me of the potential pitfalls. Um, and despite all that, I threw caution to the wind. We invested. Uh, and there were lots of ups and downs along the way. Um, you know, the company had to do a painful layoff at one point that was well chronicled in the press um, as they got a little bit too far out over their ski tips with respect to uh, their cost structure. Um, but, you know, the, the company's been managed very well. I give Eric and his team a ton of credit. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we pursued a public offering via a SPAC listing um, several months ago. And, um, you know, so far so good. It's, it's a public company, so I can't comment on the future prospects, but I'm, I'm just very, uh, it's another one where I'm proud. I'm proud of the team and the effort they've put in and the progress they've made against this, this gargantuan problem. Congrats on the very successful uh, exit. Well, it's not an exit. It's just a public company these days, but, but certainly, uh, certainly we'll pass along your congrats to the team. I think you and I share some common kind of theses about the infrastructure required to support apps like an open door or any of the other companies that we've been talking about. I know you recently uh, disclosed an investment in a company in the infrastructure space. And I'm just curious to know about your thoughts on uh, what's a, what's ahead. Where, where's the innovation going to come from in terms of infrastructure, not just the apps that we know and love, but what's required to keep them up. Oh, really good question. So yeah, like I, I think, one thing to realize, and I, I touched on this earlier, is it's it, it, it's inexorable. Every company that is successful in the world is going to become a software company. And that's that's really happening across industries today. And I'm going to get to your question, but it's important that I think your listeners understand my frame of reference here. When I look at companies like Nike, who are hiring more software developers than they are shoe designers, or Domino's Pizza, whose uh, stock has outperformed Google over the last decade. And it's not because, dare I say, the, the pizza, I don't believe, has gotten much better. It's because the company, the business has, they become a software company. They, they've gone from effectively 0% of their orders to something more like 70 or 80% of their orders come in digitally uh, through the dot-com or the app. And as a result, they could just run their business much better. They know who you are. They know how to upsell you. They can increase average order uh, size as a result that they can manage inventory and their supply chain much better. They know how to market much better. Um, and you're just seeing this happen across many industries that you wouldn't think of as software industries, but they're becoming software industries. And this is a global phenomenon as well. And it's happening, I think, it, it, it's being powered by the fact that 
we, the way software is deployed today is via the cloud. Um, and so you have these, these, these mega trends that are global um, and they're really as a result changing the way that software is being built, deployed, delivered, managed um, to the point where today modern applications are very uh, um, componentized. You know, they live in microservices and on containers. They, um, they're global, they're distributed, they're API based. Um, all this stuff makes the applications much more agile um, um, and, and perform much better than they would otherwise. And so companies, as they're becoming software companies and constantly releasing updates, new features to compete and hopefully win in their markets, that like the software uh, uh, architecture allows them to do that. But it also creates a ton of complexity. And this is where I think you know, I look at your question from is like, well, with all that complexity, how do you manage in a world that's only getting faster, more complex, more components, and, you know, more demands. And I think it has to be that, you know, uh, um, code becomes a bigger part of the story. So less manual, more auto. Uh, it has to be that, you know, decisions are, are made buy software you know, and, and made intelligently and continually better. So AI and machine learning playing a bigger and bigger role in the choice of infrastructure. Um, and these, these are runtime decisions. We're not talking like you know, um, uh, more static decisions. We're talking in the moment, how does an application get instantiated and then delivered in the best way to a set of eyeballs that's demanding it? For me, it's great because this is this means that a whole new set of companies are are getting created now that are solving these problems, and that's where I'm spending my time investing. But it is, uh, you know, it's cutting edge stuff, and um, as a result, it's not it's not easy. And only the um, you know the any, any any company that is sort of resting on its laurels will will not make it through to the other side. I hadn't heard that example about Nike, but that's that's fascinating. In 2019, uh, the the brand that they call Adidas, but we call Adidas, <laughs> uh, was a customer of mine, and I got to tour what they call uh, one of their two speed factories in Germany. And you know, you talk about an organization undergoing a digital transformation. They now have uh, software that you can use to design personalized shoes online or in a retail store and the speed factory creates the shoes on demand that is so completely disintermediated the supply chain and completely empowered the consumer and so you know your example of nike and more software engineers than than designers you're like yeah of course right how could there be anything other than that Nike's been talking a lot. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but a lot about their their digital business. Like they're serving the customer directly uh, through e-commerce channels now. Uh, another another byproduct of the pandemic is that e-commerce, as a percent of total retail, has ballooned in this country uh, and really around the world. Um, also telling, right? Even putting more pressure on companies that are trying to deliver. Uh, physical goods to, to, to consumers that they have to be digital or else they, you know, they, they, they risk peril. And brand equity is being tested 
more than ever because you're only a click away from your competitor. So whether it's, you know, an Allbirds or something can compete with Nike on a level playing field like never before. Great point. And, you know, we used to say that uh, I remember, you know, back in business school many, many moons ago, that was, uh, you know, McDonald's is really trying to manage the customer experience. And at the end of the day, the real tip of the spear for the customer experience at McDonald's is that, you know, minimum wage employee asking you what you'd like to have to eat when you go to the store, which is puts a lot of pressure on the business to make sure that the cohesive, comprehensive customer experience is really high, high quality. I think the, the, the corollary of that, the complement of that in a digital world is that, you know, that, that experience, like Adidas may have spent a lot of money on this speed factory, but if there's some glitch on the website, as someone's building that shoe, they're, they're gone. Right. You know, Google got this right early on. They realized, like, we got to get search results to people that are high fidelity. And at least as important as that, we got to get it to them super fast. Right. So they figured this out. Um, and, and now every other company in the world is having to figure it out as well. So on the topic of the, the future of work, what do you think is one thing that will be routine in the workplace, say, in 2025 that, that today might seem like science fiction? there's going to be this app called zoom and we're all going to sit at home and pretend we're at the office. Um, I actually think had it not been for the pandemic that 2025 would have been about the time when zoom really tipped. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and virtual, when I say zoom, I really mean like the whole virtual theater for, um, you know, business communication, I think would have tipped and become, uh, majority virtual. Um, I think that so, so we've sort of seen a speed up of anywhere from two to five years, I think, depending on the, the, the specific, uh, attribute or specific part of industry, um, that has, that has gone digital now, uh, and isn't going back. Um, one area that, you know, the pandemic hasn't been able to speed any faster is, uh, but I, but I think the seeds are there is like hardware that is as smart as some of our software um, and what the implications are of that. Um, I think it's not crazy to think that by 2025, we're going to have, you know, personal systems that get people around and get stuff to people, you know, over the air, most likely uh, for, for longer haul distances. So like drones that can carry people or can carry packages on a very personalized way uh, that don't require, you know, any uh, the the person being transported to do any um, navigation, uh, but but you know that will all be done smartly from a central location and safely. Uh, I think we'll start to see these kinds of like you know literally Jetsons like personal helicopter transportation device kinds of things happening, and in fact. You know, we, we've already there, there are already some companies doing this for different types of goods, but I, I expect we'll just see more and more of it in 2025. Wouldn't shock me if, you know, you look up in the air and you're seeing people moving around um, from point A to point B. Now you say 2025 would have been Zoom's coming out party if it weren't for the pandemic. Would, would there have been another kind of, you know, catalyst 
I mean, the, the, the shift that happened to Zoom in 90 days is, you know, is obviously impossible to anticipate. What, what would have been that turning point if it weren't for the pandemic? I think, you know, there, there are some physical constraints in our world that put pressure on, more and more pressure on people. One of those is time. You know, no matter what we do, the sun rises and sets every 24 hours. Like it, it, it is immutable. Uh, and I think the thing that's been driving the popularity of Zoom is the same thing that would have, you know, without the pandemic would have just kept chipping away at this problem is people have limited amounts of time. And it actually takes a lot of time to move from point A to point B. This is why I think like personal air transportation devices aren't crazy to think think about because again like the premium is on people's time and so what happened during the pandemic is nobody could move and so uh you know sort of be in the same room safely and so uh that that the need uh that is otherwise was otherwise just building for people to cut out commute times and be able to manage every minute of the day more successfully uh you know just ramped up as a result of as a result of not being able to be in the same room. But I think we were on that journey anyway, like so much like the, 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 um, you know, take the e-commerce example as well. This is, this is about digital transformation of people's lives. And, you know, back 20 years ago, maybe you'd order a book once a month online, but other than that, you went to the store to get everything. Uh, and slowly and surely e-commerce as a percent of total retail has grown to the point where it was probably 10 or 15% of all retail before the pandemic, snap your fingers, and now it's 20 to 25% in that range, just because of you know, uh, um, the inconveniences that people had to go through during the pandemic. Now people realize, hey, why was I ever not, why was I going to Costco? Why don't I just do boxed? Or you know, why don't I just uh, get stuff through Amazon? And uh, I think, again, like those days are, uh, now that people are over that hump, I don't think they're going back. So you talked about the perspectives on the infrastructure powering the apps and the services. The other kind of vector is these apps and services are data hungry. I'm curious to get your perspective on interesting technologies that are managing, call it you know, data hygiene, data aggregation, I mean, a whole other topic is biased data that's being fed to AI models, but that whole kind of uh, you know soupy mess of, of of data wrangling. Any anything interesting that you're seeing in terms of next generation technologies? Dan, you're serving me up a softball. I love it. Um, so you know, if you believe like I believe, uh, and we at GGV believe that every company's becoming a software company, then you know. Part and parcel to that is every company is going to not only um, uh, collect more and more first-party data, but um, need to drive value out of that data, right? That's going to be one key way to, to win out over competition, serve your customer better, faster, um, you know, more tightly, et cetera. And so we've been, you know, uh, hard at work investing in companies that, that are going to help this transition. I'll give you just a couple of examples uh, and the types of problems they're solving. One company is a company called Monte Carlo Data. Uh, Monte Carlo is attempting to end what they call data downtime. They're trying to make sure that all data within a company 
just like applications have performance management uh, tooling to make sure that the applications are performant, Monte Carlo is looking at data and trying to make sure that the data itself is what sh it should be because data can get corrupt, feeds can stop working, um, and if decisions are made on faulty data, that could be very, very bad, right? So they're all about data reliability as a category, um, and uh, it's early but very exciting based on the response from uh, customers and and you can see their pipeline building. Um, and, and so uh, that to me is a great opportunity. And I, I, I believe the team at Monte Carlo Data is quite strong. And I, I think you'll, you'll be hearing more about that company. Another one I'd mention is a company called Unravel Data. And what Unravel is doing is saying, hey, you know, as companies have this big data infrastructure that they've invested in both on-prem and increasingly in the cloud, they need to make sure that the applications that rely on that data run smoothly run effectively, don't, um, you know, don't burn amazing amounts of cloud resources because oftentimes they can uh, if you're not careful. And so Unravel is making sure that, um, uh, you know, they're troubleshooting all the, the, the applications that are based on, on that data, on that, 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 the, the increasingly large stores of data that companies have. And lastly, another one that I'd mentioned is a company called Tonic. Uh, Tonic is, um, if you're a developer at a company um, and you, you are, are trying to continue to improve applications in your company, you want first party data, you want real live actionable data to work against because that's what is going to allow you to, to do your best work. The problem is much of that data is sensitive. And so having developers um, have real data, let's say you're a healthcare company and in insurance, right? All that data is HIPAA protected, and so you can't you can't really provide it to your um, uh, development team, or else you run the risk of HIPAA violation. Um, and so, what Tonic is doing is finding ways to keep that data incredibly live -like, lifelike, um, but obfuscate it enough that it um, it doesn't pose risks for the company. So, those are some examples of the types of problems that exist, given that. Data, you know, more and more companies are becoming data driven. We had a uh, we had Bar from Monte Carlo as a guest in the podcast a few oh, weeks ago. Oh, fantastic! Okay, <laughs> so, so I, I didn't need to do that commercial. Bar is no, by Bar, all means. I'm so glad you had had Bar on the show. She's a wonderful, wonderful founder and CEO. And um, if I could find ten more bars, I would back every one of them. It was a fascinating discussion, and I'm so bullish on what they're doing and on her personally. So. Uh, the only unfortunate thing is that you uh, you beat me to the deal, so <laughs> she no longer needs my money. <laughs> but no, good uh, good find, uh, Glenn. We're bad out of time, but but I got to get in one last question. One of my favorites. What's your advice for a younger version of Glenn? Dan, are you trying to say I'm not young? Uh, I I think that I'm going to go back to the question around what am I proud of. Uh, I'm proud of the people that I've gotten to work with and watching them develop and feeling like maybe I played a small role in helping them achieve their dreams and developing themselves uh, as people and as, as business people. I think I would tell myself the same thing, like stay super focused on the people. When I, when I make sure that like I'm making decisions about who I want to work with, what entrepreneurs I want to back, what companies I'm 
going to decide to not invest in. Uh, if I focus, if I really spend my time focused singularly on the people and don't get so worried or enthralled with um, the story, the market, usually good things happen. You know, businesses are just collections of people and leadership matters so much, both to who else gets recruited and to the culture that's created in those companies that I think really focusing on leaders is, is the name of the game. I'll give you a quick example. Back in 2009, 2010 timeframe, I got a call from a partner over at Sequoia who said, hey, there's a couple of young entrepreneurs I'd like you to meet guy named Ryan Chesky and Joe Gebbia, Nate Wacharzik. Well, they were the founders of Airbnb and they had just started the company and it was very early. They had had a lot of trouble getting it going. They had to really hustle to even prove that there was any demand at all for other people, you know, people providing couches and spare rooms to others and then for that there would be demand for those for those uh, room nights, it was really a tough slog, but they went and they were really smart. They went to South by Southwest uh, where there's historically a notorious shortage of hotel rooms for people who want to be there and prices get jacked up and they proved a little spike. I mean, we're talking like $10,000 a day spike, very small. And so I was really interested in the business, um, but there were two other companies that were doing the exact same thing and they were all about the same size. And the two others, you know, had slightly more experienced entrepreneurs and maybe with better pedigree, they didn't have the hunger, but they were smoother. And although I got very close at that time, and thankfully the, 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 the story is I ultimately did invest in Airbnb, but I didn't at that moment. And, uh, you know, missed that window of opportunity because I got kind of confused. Well, hey, if there are three of them, who's going to win? I'm not sure. When really what I should have focused on is, hey, can this team, this Airbnb team, can they, you know, are, do, do they have the hunger, the drive, the ambition, the wherewithal, the guts to go for it? And what you find is like when outcomes in this, this arena, this, this, you know, crazy venture backed high growth arena that we, we live in. Outcomes are not linear. And so today, Airbnb, and again, fortunately, we're an investor. Airbnb is worth over $120 billion on the public market. And I don't remember the names of those two other companies, but I think they're both worth zero. I'm pretty sure both closed down. So it's, it's very nonlinear. It wasn't like you could invest in any one of them and you're going to do okay. You had to bet right. And betting right was all about betting on the right people. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the lesson I would, I would remind myself of when I was a younger, younger pup. I get goosebumps hearing you tell the Airbnb story. And you know, the ironic thing is this is a show about AI and the future of work, but all of the most compelling examples that, that we hear routinely are about people. That's what it comes about, back to. You know, it's, it's the people that are creating the technology that's changing the world, but it starts with people. 100%, I 100% agree with that. Well, Glenn, I, I, uh, we, we've gone way over time, but uh, this has been too interesting to cut short. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, so many themes that maybe we'll, uh, we'll get an opportunity to pick back up in, uh, in another one of these. Uh, we'd, we'd love to have you back, if that's okay. Sounds great, Dan. Good stuff. Well, uh, 
Thank you to Glenn. Great discussion. Uh, Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, signing off. Back next week with another fascinating guest.